This morning, Miss Cindy has a special project for the kids, and so for those of you who are ages four and up, if it's okay with your parents for you to leave during service, you can go back with Miss Cindy. Riley's really excited. <laughs> Always. <laughs> and so if you guys want to follow her back there, you guys are more than welcome to participate in, the, I think, a special project today or children's message, one of the two. If you would join me as we go to our great God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we again thank You. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, the risen King, the One who died for us, and the One who bought us with His blood. Father, as we come before You this morning and as we worship you, continue to worship You by, by turning to Your Word, I pray that You would teach us. I pray that You would, that you would change us. Uh, again, I ask that as we walk away from here, that not one of us would leave this building without looking more like Jesus as a result of how we encounter You in, in Your Word. As a result of how we discover what He has to say to us. And so please teach us. I pray that You would be with me as I speak uh, and, and explain Your words. I pray that um, You'd help me to recall the words that I've prepared, uh, but that might they be honoring to Your Word, which is why we're here. Glorify and honor Yourself. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Well, in the summer before my 20th year, before driving back to Chicago for school, a good friend of mine and I decided that we were going to enjoy one of the last days of the summer before hitting the books, and uh, we went up into the mountains to enjoy the hot springs. However, somewhere along the way, we, we took a, a wrong turn. And so when we got to Glenwood Springs, we, we decided to pull over, we got out our town map, and we determined how to correct our mistake just before we made or I made an even bigger one. Uh, we figured out the path to the pool, and then I put my car in gear, and I made a U-turn, putting us on the shortest path. But speeding down the road from behind us, there was a black Corvette that met our path just as my car was parked perpendicular in the middle of the street. My parents' new car, I should say. She was going too fast. She didn't look up, and I didn't look in my rearview mirrors. But 10 minutes later, the officer was writing me a ticket for an illegal U-turn. And I was driving home my, my parents' brand new car with some new black decals that were installed along the side. A couple days later, when I was standing in court, the judge read the charge, and he looked up at me over his narrow glasses to ask that witty question, and he said, how do you plead? And to my left was this middle-aged woman who had just successfully persuaded this same judge to reduce her speeding ticket. Behind me was the lawyer with his client who were getting ready to argue his case. And to my right was the woman who came there for my support, <laughs> the lady from the black Corvette um, that T-boned my parents' car. Uh, actually, she was preparing her own counter-defense against mine. The other driver was indeed going too fast. She probably looked like didn't look up, but I knew in my heart that I was guilty of the very charge that had been brought against me. And so I looked at the judge and I said, I'm, I'm guilty, Your Honor. And I'll never forget what happened next. That judge looked down at me and he took his glasses off and he paused for a second in surprise and thinking he hadn't heard me right, he said, Young man, I, I just want to make sure that you understood the question. And so he explained to me the fines that I might face, uh, the difference between guilty and not guilty. He actually explained that to me. And, and that if I pled guilty, I wouldn't have the recourse to argue my case. And so I explained to him that I had turned 
uh, in a place that I was not supposed to turn. I had failed to look in my rearview mirror, which probably would have prevented the entire episode altogether, and so I repeated, Your Honor, I'm, I'm guilty of the charge. And the other driver was pleasantly surprised and thanked me afterward for keeping it simple. The judge seemed to be pleasantly surprised as well, but apparently most people don't, don't come to court and have to argue for their own guilt. <laughs> but uh, he gave me a rather modest fine that I went on to pay. Um, you see, we live in a society that believes that, that giving each person a fair trial is, is what we're supposed to do. But, but we're surprised when things, things uh, happen a little bit unexpectedly for us. You see, within that system, there are multitudes of people who, who do their best to avoid the consequences. And there are also a fair number of judges in this world who are not exactly fair and honest themselves. And we're, we've all heard examples of corruption around the world. But one day, the world is going to face a different kind of judge. A kind of judge who knows not only the external evidence that's laid before him and and argued in court, but a judge who knows the very thoughts and motives of every single individual. He's a judge who knows the truth. He knows the heart. And he knows the circumstances. He's a judge who can't be bought off. His standard cannot be moved. And he is the only judge who remains pure from all wrongdoing and unrighteousness. This morning we come to a letter that Jesus had sent to the church of Pergamum as we continue our series through the letters of the the, the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And here Jesus reveals four characteristics of himself as a judge which reminds the church of our calling to holiness. Uh, just as a reminder, as we look at each one of these letters, you know, we're going to find a certain form that Jesus follows in each of these letters. These are personal letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches in Asia Minor uh, through the Apostle John who, who saw these things while he was on the island of Patmos. And before he gets into all the tribulation and the events of things to come, Jesus writes these seven personal letters to these churches. And, and like any letter, these letters have a, a form to them. We usually start out, dear so-and-so, we finish sincerely, or, or love so-and-so, and we have different parts in between. And there's a similar format to these letters. It starts out with a to section. I'm writing to you, and then immediately says, from Jesus, and he describes himself in a way that's very pertinent to that church. He talks about knowing their works, and it's usually in this section there's a section of, of praise, but sometimes a rebuke for a couple of the churches. The fourth section, he talks about how I have this against you, and you'll see him say that in this letter. For three of the churches, there was a warning that came with that, and sometimes he encourages the churches to remember something. And then he always concludes with a statement that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and a promise to those who are conquerors, the overcomer. And so, in our first section, he, he just says very simply, I'm to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Probably means to the pastor, the messenger, from the church of Pergamum. The Pergamum, uh, if you remember last week, we were in the city of Smyrna. Now we've gone 68 miles to the north. Pergamum is the next, the next town, next city uh, to the north in this circuit that we're going on between these seven churches. 68 miles north of Smyrna. It's a city that's a, it's a little bit larger than the limits of Davenport. So in ancient standards, this is a pretty big city as far as how it was spread out. The name Pergamum itself means citadel. Literally, the ancient city looked like a 1,000-foot fortress. And it stood on top of this great hill. And if you approached it from a distance, you could see this city standing on this hill from the valley below, which led to the Aegean Sea just 20 miles away. 
For 250 years, Pergamum served as the capital of Asia Minor. Uh, and so it was a city that, that was um, known far and wide. People crossed through it. The roads led to it. But it was an important city that was dedicated also to the gods of many pagan cults and, and deities. And so if you came to Pergamum, you would quickly notice all the temples that were spread out throughout this, this city devoted to Zeus and to uh, Apollos and um, uh, Aphrodite, different, different uh, Greek and, and Roman gods. But these many, many temples were built on that, on that citadel. And, and so we have Pergamum, the city, but Jesus says these are the words of. And again, the, when He says that, it's an, it's, a, um, it, it's an ancient Persian way of saying, thus says the king. In Old Testament standards, the prophet would say, thus says Yahweh. And, and here in Revelation, Jesus says, thus says, and, and He describes Himself in terms that... that that pertained to this church. Pergamum had a legal system that's important for our discussion today. Because you see, in Pergamum, there was one man in the city. In this great city the size of Davenport, there was one person in the city that had the power to enforce the death penalty. And there was only one man with that power. And that individual was a man called the Roman proconsul. Uh, he served as a, um, a delegated leader from the Roman government. In essence, he was the provincial governor. And, uh, and they called this power the right of the sword. And so it's very significant that as Jesus speaks to the church of Pergamum, how does he describe himself? He describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He, this is the one who has the right of the sword. He's the judge. The first characteristic that we see of Jesus reveals that we have a judge whose word is absolute. You see, a sharp two-edged sword would have had the ability to judge swiftly and it would judge accurately. And it was with this authority that Jesus judges the churches and He judges the world. And so it's significant in chapter 1 as He reveals Himself as the one who has the two-edged sword coming from His mouth later in chapter 19. In chapter 19, Jesus is going to judge the world at Armageddon and we're told that He'll feed the birds with their flesh. But the sword, it comes again from His mouth. And you see, when Jesus speaks, his, his authority is absolute. Now, now, we live in a culture that doesn't believe in absolutes typically, do we? Uh, if, if you go anywhere, you'll hear people talking about how you know, really all truth is, is relative. There are no absolutes, and they believe that absolutely. The world, the, the world teaches that, that everything is relative. Largely, it's because you know, people look around. And I mean, we, we look around, and you hear people make statements of truth, right? And, and it doesn't take very long for, for us to find an exception to a lot of the truths that, that men make up. And, and so we set these standards and say, this is the way it's supposed to be, and then it just, you know, wait a couple days, and that standard shifts because men make the rules and, and they're not, they aren't absolute. In philosophy, an absolute is a principle that's regarded universally. It's universally valid. And in Scripture, God teaches us that you can count on His Word being absolute. Listen to how the psalmist described God's Word in Psalm 119, verses 159 and 160. He said, Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your Word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. You see, the psalmist declared how he loves God's instructions. He loves God's instructions. When you think of God's rules, is that, is that how you think of them? We, we get all kinds of instructions in this life, don't we? 
You microwave something, you put it in the microwave, you know, but before you do that, how long do I need to put it? There's some very careful, do you love the instructions? Or this kind of, oh, this is just something I've got to do. When you read the laws of the land, do you love those instructions? But how about God's word? When you read God's instructions, when you read his laws, do you, do you love it? You see, the psalmist says, I, I love his precepts. God's word is one, uh, God's word in, in, is one of his means of expressing his love to us. And life itself is packaged into truths that we find in His Word. If you do the math, and what you'll find is that God's Word is absolute truth. And unlike the laws of the nations and the laws of all the empires, every single one of God's rules will last forever. And so when Jesus speaks, it is absolute. Hebrews 4 also describes the absolute authority of God's Word. And describes that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. In the ancient world, there was a lot of debate regarding you know, what, what's the difference between the spirit and the soul and the body. If you talk to modern philosophers, they'll have lots of discussions about you know, what's, what's the difference between the material and the immaterial, and, and can you divide the spirit and the soul? And Some passages talk about there being a soul and a body. Some talk about a spirit, soul, and body. So what's the difference between those? And, and people have been arguing that for thousands of years and trying to figure out what that difference is. And, and what God tells us is, is God's Word is so precise that it, it can even divide between something that's been debated for thousands of years. It divides between the joint and of the marrow. When we talk about the, a skilled scalpel of the surgeon. God's Word brings healing and can cut in places where even the surgeon's scalpel can't be that precise. Discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who we must give account. See, Jesus reveals four characteristics of Himself in this passage in Revelation as a judge. And it reminds us of our call to holiness. But the first thing He wanted the church of Pergamum to remember was that their judge, the judge that they will ultimately face as His church, whether they were the believers in the church or if they were unbelievers in their midst, they will all face a a judge at one judgment or another. A judgment for rewards or a judgment regarding their sin depending on where they were with Christ. But that that judge, no matter when they faced him, is a judge whose word is absolute. There's no renegotiating your sentence. There's no saying, oh, maybe I could serve a little bit less time on this. Or could you reduce the fine? There's no bribe with which you can pay this judge off. And life does not come by manipulating the system. Fullness of life and joy is enjoyed by living according to every one of his words. But secondly, he describes to the church of Pergamum that he is the judge who knows our circumstances. He knows our circumstances. Now, in each one of these letters, five of the letters, he, he comes to them and says, I know your works. I, I know you. I see you. Um, but last week we saw with the church of Smyrna, he changes that a, a little bit. Rather than say, I know your works, he says, I know your tribulation. Uh, today he changes it again. And then I think the rest of the time he's going to continue with that other pattern of I knowing your works. But he changes it here. Not I know your works, not I know your tribulation, but I, I know where you dwell. And here's how he describes Pergamum. Where Satan's throne is. You live in the city where Satan's throne is. And, and that was very pertinent observation regarding the city of Smyrna. And, and the, the saints would have known it. Uh, as I mentioned before, Pergamum was filled 
with Roman temples, temples to their gods. Uh, if you went to one end of, of Pergamum, uh, you would see the great temple of, of Zeus, uh, the throne of Zeus, as it was oftentimes called. Uh, this is a reconstruction of the temple of Zeus, uh, also called the altar of Zeus. And this is just one entrance to it. Um, this is in Berlin where they've reconstructed it. I think they just finished it uh, uh, again recently. But it was this, this glorious altar. And, and you would come up to it and the people would worship Zeus there. Um, and Jesus says to this church, He says, I, I know where you dwell. You know, I know that right there where you live, the, the chief of the Roman gods that they worship, uh, they, they have a temple there that's devoted specifically to Zeus. And people come from all over the world and that's right there where you dwell. Down the street was the temple of Athena. She was supposed to be the daughter of Zeus and the goddess of wisdom and of war. Jesus says, I, I know where you dwell. Another place in Pergamum was the temple of Dionysus, uh, the god of wine and drunkenness. Ancient worship here included frequent feasts in which the participants would gorge themselves on raw meat, drinks to excess, and would run through the hills screaming, dancing, committing uh, acts of immorality. I know where you dwell, he says. The temple of Asclepius was on the other side of town, the snake god of healing. And his temple was dedicated to physical healing. And people believed that if they spent the night there, they could be healed. That'd be great, wouldn't it? You go to this building, you, you spend the night, and you, you come out in the morning, and everything's all better. There was just one catch. You had to spend the night, but you had to sleep in a room filled with snakes. Now, they were non-venomous, but still, the thought of sleeping in this room with mm, creepy crawlies, it's just kinda, but that's the worship that they had. Those that were dying, if, if you were dying and you came to be healed, they'd say, sorry, go away. But if they thought they could heal you, uh, you would be invited to spend the night, and then after treatment from the priests, they'd prescribe certain medicines and herbs and activities. And then when a healing took place, the patient would inscribe their name on a white stone as a testimony to their God. It's interesting, in the book of Numbers, we read the story of, of the bronze serpent. If you remember, the, the Jews, they, um, they had disobeyed, and so God sent serpents, fiery serpents that went and, and people were dying. And so God gave a really, unusual, a really unusual prescription for them. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. Moses, make a snake. Make a bronze serpent. Take this serpent and pound it out and put it on a staff. And you, you put that staff somewhere high where people can come. And they probably had to travel through the camp, and there's a big camp, a lot of Israelites, and so they'd have to go and, and just look at the serpent. And if they looked at the serpent, God healed them. If they didn't look at the serpent, they died. And so it was an act of faith. It was an act of, you know, because what, what is looking at a, a statue going to do for me? It was unusual. It was unusual in Jesus' day, but, but he, in, in Moses' day, but he, he took this situation and, and he took this unusual method of healing people and reminding them that it's by faith that I heal you. It's by faith that, that these things take place. And so, uh, the people were healed in those days. And later on in John, uh, Jesus uses this exact story to describe Himself and says, in, in a similar way, God is doing something similar in my day. Do you remember the passage in John chapter 3? He's talking to Nicodemus. And most of us have memorized John 3.16. We talk about the... Uh, uh, the, the Son who, who came for us, for God so loved the world. But the verse before that, some of you may not have read before. So he's talking to Nicodemus. says, If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from the heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, he says, you have to understand, you remember that story back when Moses made that bronze serpent and people were thinking, wow, this is kind of like an idol. Are we supposed to do this? And God says, I, I, this is what I'm telling you to do to be healed. And the people that believed were healed. And Jesus said in the same way, the Son of Man is lifted up. Speaking of His death on the cross that is to come. The Son of Man has been lifted up. And if you look upon Him and you believe in Christ who died for you, and most of the world says that's ridiculous. That makes no more sense than going out in the desert and looking at a snake on a, on a staff. So I need to, to trust Jesus for my sins to be forgiven? That doesn't make sense. And yet God says, this is the way that I have designated. I've sent My Son to die for you. And just like that serpent was raised up, My Son has been raised up and He died on a cross for you. And He took the penalty for your sins that you might be saved. But you have to believe on Him and not on your own works. And the world says, you be a good enough person and you can make it to heaven. And God says, no, My Son is the one who was good enough. And He died in your place and paid the penalty that you deserved. You believe Him. And I will save you. And then he goes on to that verse that most people have memorized. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so that, that, um, that serpent on the, the staff was a symbol of God's salvation. Later on, it actually became an idol and they started worshiping it and one of the later kings of Israel had to destroy it. But interestingly, in this story that was supposed to be a picture of Jesus to come, in the Greek and Roman world, they took that same symbol and they distorted it. And at the temple of Asclepios, it became a symbol of, uh, of healing. And so, uh, in fact, you might recognize that. We, we have that same symbol on a lot of our medical um, symbology if you go to the hospital you might see a staff a rod with a serpent on it. and it's not actually the serpent of moses it's, it's actually a replication of the um uh from the temple of asclepios it was an imitation devoted to god of the god of healing and medicine but in pergamum you know this was the stuff that that the people were surrounded with. They, were, they lived next door to, to temples where people slept overnight with snakes. And Jesus says, I, I, I know where you dwell. Caesar worship. Pergamon was the capital of Caesar worship. Last week we saw the church of Smyrna and we saw how the people were persecuted if they didn't burn incense to Caesar. Uh, they faced imprisonment, death, refusing to burn incense to the emperor just once a year. The Christians in Pergamum they, they were no strangers to persecution as well. But here in Pergamum, rather than burning incense to, to Caesar once a year, it was something that was done every day. It was on a daily basis. And the church of Smyrgum, wow, the Pergamum, they suffered for it. I know where you dwell, Jesus says. You see, Satan had a powerful influence on this city where people sought the answers to this life and eternity in the temples of all their different gods. And Pergamum was where Satan's throne was. And yet, the people in this church, Jesus says, you, you have stood firm. You stood firm. You've held fast. You didn't deny Me. You didn't deny the faith. 
And so when everything got really tough and you faced the ultimate test, some of you died for this, you still stood firm and your church was faithful. And I commend you for this. He calls that one individual, a man named Antipas. He talks about how Antipas was, was martyred. He died for his faith in Jesus Christ. Um, many have speculated regarding who Antipas is. We, we really don't know, but, but the name is significant. Some of you have heard of Antipas before. Anybody think of where you've heard the name Antipas anywhere else in the New Testament? Herod Antipas, yeah. Antipas was one of the very popular names of the, the Herodian family. And so this family that persecuted Jesus and John the Baptist and a lot of the early Christians, it, it may be, we don't, we don't know, but it may be that one of the Herods who was in politics uh, had come to Christ. This high official, and, and he was converted to Christianity. Eventually he was placed in Pergamum. Um, some have speculated those things. But regardless, he was a person of importance, a person that was well-known, and, and ultimately he was made an example of. And there in Pergamum, uh, likely he was tossed into the, one of the arenas with wild beasts or gladiators or a lot of the other things they did for fun with Christians. And uh, apparently this was a recent memory for, for the church of Pergamum because Jesus says, I, I know you. I, I know where you dwell. I, I know what you faced. I know the circumstances that you're in. Antipas died for me. And, and the people in that church faced similar struggles. Isn't it comforting to know that your judge, the one who will evaluate your good works one day, who judges the motives, the thoughts, he's the God who knows your circumstances. He knows. You ever feel overwhelmed by life? Overwhelmed with the task that God's given for you? Overwhelmed with being a good husband? a good wife, overwhelmed with what it means to honor your parents, overwhelmed with what it means to not exasperate your children. Life can be tough sometimes, and, 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 but in the midst of that, He knows your circumstances. He knows the temptations that you face. He knows that sometimes you're tempted to just give up, but be encouraged that, that knowing that He is fully aware of the particular circumstances that have been thrown at you. He knows you. We have a judge who knows our circumstances. But we also have a judge who hates sin and compromise. Uh, lest, lest we start to think that he knows my circumstances so I can kind of you know, get off and just kind of skip all this. Don't, don't forget that he's also a God who hates sin. He hates compromise. And he speaks to that specifically with the church of Pergamum. He goes on and says, I have, I have this against you. You guys are doing great. You've stood firm. You live where Satan dwells. Some of you have actually died for your faith. But I have this against you, he says. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, the doctrine of Balaam kind of just sounds very unfamiliar here in the book of Revelation because we haven't heard about Balaam since when? Book of Numbers. So you've got to go all the way back in the Old Testament to when the Israelites were in the wilderness. And, and what was happening was, if you remember the story of Balaam, uh, Balaam was a prophet. We actually have historical documents of this person. He was a soothsayer. Uh, he, he killed birds and read their livers and did a lot of the other stuff that people do in witchcraft. He was a false prophet. But somehow, he had a message from God. And so Balak, the king of the Midianites, comes to Balaam and says, see these Israelites out here? They want to pass through my land. And so I want you to come 
you, popular prophet. He was a very popular prophet of the day. I want you to come and I want you to curse them. Balaam said, hey, this is some good money here. I can make a, a good profit off this one. The king of Midian is coming to me. I think I could do that. But then God warns Balaam and says, Balaam, don't do it. I'm blessing these people. And so I don't care how much money you think you're going to make off of this. This is my paraphrase. Don't do it. So, okay. So he tells the messenger, sorry, I can't go. But boy, what was Balaam thinking in his mind? That's some good money. And so a second opportunity comes. And they say, please, come curse these people. And so an angel of the Lord says, okay, Balaam, you go with them, but don't speak an evil word against my people. Don't, don't do it. And so along the way, Balaam is journeying there, and he's riding on a donkey, and the donkey three times goes off the path. One time it crushes his leg, if I remember correctly. Um, not crushed, but pushed him against the wall. And so what's Balaam do? Starts beating the donkey. And then the unbelievable happens, and the donkey speaks and says, why are you hitting me? And then, and then God shows him the angel and says, why are you hitting me? I've protected your life these three times. And the most incredible part of the story is not that the donkey spoke to Balaam. The, the incredible part of the story is that Balaam talks back to the donkey. And so God reveals the angel that the donkey saved him from, and, and so he's like, okay, whoa, whoa, this is serious stuff. When I go to Balak, I better not be making some. I, I better not say anything evil against this people Israel. If I curse them, whoo, if if donkey could save me from this, then okay. So, so he goes, and he's standing on the hill, and and Balak shows him all these people of Israel, at least one part of him. He's okay, curse them, bless Israel. May they be fruitful and multiply. And, and he says a whole bunch of other blessings. And Balak goes, "What in the world are you doing?" Why in the world would I hired you to curse these people? And, and you bless them? Okay, let's go over here. And so he takes them to another edge and he sees another part of Israel and he's, okay, curse them. And what happens? Bless Israel. And he offers another blessing of these people. You don't get it, man. I'm paying you a lot of good money. Why? And so he takes them to a third place. And again, he, he, he blesses them. And then the story transitions to another scene, and it looks like we've transitioned and we've gone on. But what Revelation is telling us is that those two stories go together, and that the second story is, was respons- what happened because of what Balaam did next. We don't learn this in Numbers, but later on it's revealed to us in Scripture that Balaam, because he loved that money and he wanted the profit of it, what did he do? In some way, and we don't have his words, but somehow he goes to Balak and he says, look, look. I can't. I can't curse them. It's not going to happen. God has told me specifically, and I, I can't say any evil words against them. But I'll tell you what you can do. You still pay me, and I'll find a way for you. You do this. You send your women down there, and you take a whole bunch of idols, and you lead the Israelites into immorality and idolatry. And you cause them to sin against their God and cause them to worship false idols, other gods, and God Himself will curse them and punish them for their sin. I didn't say anything bad against Israel. I blessed them. But I sure showed this guy a way that he can bring God's curse down by the people themselves. And that was the sin of Balaam. And, and Balaam was held responsible for that later on. Um, and it seems that the church of, pa- the, of the church of Pergamum that it was t- 
tolerating those who promoted and accepted idolatry and sexual immorality within the church. You see, there were some who were in the church who were causing a stumbling block for other believers in their midst. And this is what the Nicolaitans were doing that Jesus mentions here. And Jesus hated it. They were doing the same thing that Balaam had done back in the Old Testament. And God had ended up punishing the people for that. And eventually, many people died just as Balaam said they would until someone intervened. And so Jesus comes to the church of Pergamum and He says, no, 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 we're not going to repeat this. The Nicolaitans are among you and there's a compromise taking place here. There's idolatry taking place in the church. There's sexual immorality taking place in your midst and being encouraged among believers. And so, again, Jesus tells us, as we're going to see in a moment, He who has ears to hear, my encouragement to you is if you have ears, and we've already determined three weeks in a row, two weeks in a row, that we all have ears, right? And most of them work. And if you don't have ears that work, you have eyes that can read the text on the page. If you have ears to hear, listen to what He says to this church of Pergamum and evaluate your own heart and ask yourself, is this taking place in my life at all? Idolatry in the church. You see, you and I were made to worship. That's how God created you. He created you to worship. Every human being that has lived on the face of the earth for all of time was created to worship. That's our function. We do it. And, and as C.S. Lewis, I think it was, that said it, there's a God-shaped hole built in all of us and only one thing truly fits there that's going to bring fulfillment and joy. But if you try filling that God-shaped hole with something else, it's going to be partially empty and it's never going to be truly satisfying. And so, around the world, people worship. If you don't worship Jesus Christ, you're going to worship something. And some people worship idols. Some people worship their TVs. Some people go home and they watch sports and golf and football. And some people worship other people. But no matter what, we're beings that were created to worship and you're going to worship something. Something is going to receive the devotion of your life. And in the church, we are called to worship Jesus Christ. If your job is more important to you than Jesus Christ, then you've created an idol out of it. If your video games, your sports, your, your family, if any of these things are more important to you than Jesus Christ, then, then it's become an idol. Good things can become an idol if they're receiving the wrong focus. And in the church of Pergamum, there was idolatry that was taking place. It was being encouraged by this group called the Nicolaitans. And Jesus said, nah. I have this against you. You hold to the teachings of Balaam. You hold to the teachings of Nicolaitans. In the same way, there's immorality in the church. And in the church of the United States, my friends, pornography has permeated many churches. And there are many of you that are struggling with this and tolerating it. And we tolerate movies and shows that promote adultery in our hearts. Jesus said, if you look on a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And many of us are tolerating things in our own homes with our own families and we're watching stuff that Jesus said, this is no better than what Balaam did with Balak. This is no better than what the Nicolaitans were teaching the church of Pergamum. And in our own homes, we're tolerating things and it's permeating our churches. The pornography is an industry that generates $12 billion every year. That's more than more than the combined annual revenues of ABC, NBC, and CBS combined. 
Research shows that 65% of young adult men and 18% of young women expose themselves on a weekly basis to pornography. Another 17% of men and 30% of women do so once a month. Add to this the more tolerated forms of pornography that Christians around the world are paying for in their in form of services like Netflix and HBO, where explicit content is permeating what the, they pump into your home. I just read an article from Esquire online. Talked about 30 of the sexiest movies that you can download right now on Netflix. And it went in detail. I turned the article off because I was doing research and it just was too much. We tolerate immorality at work, at school. And Jesus is not in the church. See, our society accepts it. It encourages it. It flaunts it. This is not to be so among us. We need to be accountable to one another. Men with men, women with women, fathers, sons, mothers and daughters. It's a problem. If you're finding yourself in this struggle, just, just know, first of all, know that, that Jesus knows your circumstances. He knows where you dwell. He knows where you dwell. And he's compassionate. He does not tolerate sin, but He's a compassionate God who knows your circumstances. He knows your temptations. And my friends, if you're struggling with this, find somebody. Get another guy in the church to, to walk this walk with you. Just say, look, I, I'm, I'm fighting this and I'm losing. I need some help. I just need somebody to talk to me. There's, I, I'd be glad to point to you some services online that you can use where you can team with others that you love and know that will help you. Jesus tells the church of Pergamum, He says, repent or else. Heed the wording of Pergamum. He says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of My mouth. My friends, judgment begins with the church. And it needs to begin with ourselves. And each one of us needs to examine our own lives. And if these struggles are real among us, it needs to be dealt with. And you need to deal with it. My friends, I'd, I'd love to help. You can talk to me and you don't need to be ashamed. I, I, there's others that are struggling through these same things. Let us work together and love each other through this. Well, finally, Jesus also says that we have a judge who rewards the conquerors. We have a judge who rewards the conquerors. Again, He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have an ear to hear, then what He's saying is, is I'm writing this letter to the church of Pergamum. This is an ancient church that existed almost 2,000 years ago. Real church, real people in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. But but it's not just for Pergamum. This is for anybody that has ears. And so, most letters are personal. If you open it, that's just rude. Jesus says, I want everybody to read this. This is for you. This is for DeWitt. This is for Jeff Niles. This is for Brian Schmidt. This is for all of us. You read it. You apply it to you. This is a commandment for everyone who has intellectual capability of understanding these words and obeying them. And so he says to the one who conquers. And I just want to clarify like I do each week. When he says to the victor, to the, one, to the conqueror, uh, the, the first thing we typically read that as, our, our tendency is to say, okay, who's the conqueror? Who's the victor? Well, I'm a victor if I overcome, if I obey what He just said, if, if, I, if I purge this from my life, if I walk with Christ and, and I overcome that sin that I'm struggling with, that, then I'm a victor, right? And that's where our mind goes. But in John's writing, the word victor, the word conqueror is applied differently. 
Now, it's great. It's, it's wonderful. That's what we're called. We're called to that kind of obedience. But the conqueror is not the one who ob- ends up obeying and following all the commands. The conqueror is the one who follows Jesus who already conquered sin and death for us on the cross. And so you are a conqueror if you believe in Jesus Christ. You are a victor if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the promises that He gives to the conqueror are not promises to those who actually obey all these commands. The promises to the conqueror are blessings to those who are already in Christ and they should motivate you to obedience because of what He's going to reward you in the future. And so, to those who are believers in Jesus Christ, those who are conquerors because Jesus conquered sin and death, this is the promise for you. The conqueror, first of all, he says, will get some of the hidden manna. The manna was that food that we talked about that the the Israelites were given in the wilderness. Every day they went outside their tents, tents, they gathered some up and they had food for the day. God provided for them. Um... The conqueror is the one who will get some of the spiritual food that the rest of the world can't have. It's not for them. Jesus gives to those who are His. And it's a great privilege. But then Jesus says something kind of weird, at least for us. I'm going to give you a white stone. Wow. I remember when my kids brought stones home for me. That was one of the coolest things ever. Right, David? Yeah, definitely. Uh, man, I know with my screen. I called him out in service. Um, yeah. Uh, that's our rule in our house. If, if, I, if I tell stories about my kids, i got to give them ice cream. So I called them out. I didn't ask for permission, so ice cream it is later on. Um, so, um, yeah, so my kids would bring rocks home. Dad, check out this rock. It's for you. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> His head was down. He didn't see that. Um, I kept some of them. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you a white rock. And we read that and go, Wow, thanks, Jesus. But there's something significant about it. We already saw how white rocks were used at one of the temples. And if you were healed, you get this white rock with your name on it. But there were other uses of white rocks in Pergamum. And specifically, and I think this is what Jesus is alluding to, if you were part of the athletic competition, uh, if, if you won the race, you would receive not, not a, a ribbon with a gold medallion on it, not a trophy with some with a baseball bat on top, you know, showing his stuff. You'd receive a white rock. That was your prize for winning the race. And so it was a trophy. But it was more than a trophy. It was a ticket. Because after the games, there would be a victory celebration afterwards. So think about those red carpet ceremonies in Hollywood. and Everybody comes to celebrate their movies. And they come to this building, and I walk in. Oh, great, I'm going to come in. I want to go sit with all these cool people. And the person stops me at the door and says, what? Nope. Where's your ticket? You don't have a pass. You can't come in here. And I'm turned away. And I'm humiliated at the door because... I wanted to go into the party, but I didn't have a ticket. And the same thing would happen in, in Pergamum, and they'd go to the party, and the person would say, Wait, where is it? Where's your white rock? And, and if you had that white rock with your name on it, you'd say, Okay, come on in. Come enjoy the victory celebration. This is for you. You're the victor, you're the conqueror. And so in Pergamum, the admission to the theater was a white stone. And Jesus promises to the church of Pergamum that He is going to write a new name on these stones for them. And they will share in the eternal victory. And and they are invited to attend the special ceremonies. 
heaven itself. My friends, Jesus is the judge. He's our judge. The Bible talks about different judgments that are going to take place. We talk about the white throne judgment, a judgment which results in the lake of fire. You won't be there for that one. It talks about a judgment in which people will be cast into hell. You won't be there for that one. None of you are a believer in Jesus Christ. In Corinthians, he talks about the judgment seat of Christ in which he will judge our works. And a lot of those works can be burned up and a lot of those works are going to remain. Those works that we did that everybody went, wow, that's great, and we did with false motives, it's not going to last. But those works that we did sacrificially, that we did for Jesus and for His glory, our motives for to honor Him, even when they were just little things, those are the things that are going to last. Those are the kinds of judgments that you and I are going to stand before. And there will be things that we go, wow, I really blew that. But understand, you will stand before Him. and You will be accountable for how you serve Him today. The lake of fire is not for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are a conqueror. You have a ticket to the winning ceremonies. But we will stand before the judge. And we are accountable for how we invest in this life with the opportunities that He gives to us now. And so we need to remember that we need to trust His Word. That we need to love His Word. That we need to live by His absolute Word. This is life for us. We need to remember that that we serve a judge that knows us. And He calls us to hold fast when times are difficult. We need to remember that persecution is going to come in a world full of Balaam's and Nicolaitans. We're called to be Antipas. If Jesus is the judge, we need to recognize sin as sin. We need to hate it and not compromise with it. To be a part of this world and to be associated with what it, with what it worships, it brings the surety of God's judgment. He will purge His people of the sins of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And sometimes His judgment comes in this lifetime. And it comes as consequences and a father's discipline because He loves us. And that judgment is not fun. But He does it because He wants to purify us from these things. And because He loves us. And because Jesus is the judge, we need to remember that He's the one who rewards those who are victors in Christ. And so will you purge yourself of the sins of Balaam and the Nicolaitans? Will you receive the spiritual food that the world doesn't have the privilege to take part of? And will you receive that ticket to our eternal victory celebration? My friends, if you're here today and you're hearing these things and go, wow, I, I, this is kind of new to me. This stuff about Jesus dying on the cross, I mean, that, it, I, I don't understand all that. I'd love to talk to you today. Your friends that you came with, your family that you're sitting with, would love to talk to you and share with you how you can know that that white rock with your name on it is yours. That ticket to the victory celebration is yours. That heaven and eternal life are yours. So my friends, if you are among those who are overcomers, let us live like those who are His. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You. We give You praise. We thank You for how You addressed the church of Pergamum. This is a church that had a lot of great things going for them, and boy, they really had a lot of things bad going for them. But lest we think that we're better than Pergamum, and the saints that were there, I pray that You would cause each one of us to reflect on our own lives, 
in our own hearts and that we would see are, are these same, same things among us? If, if Jesus wrote me a letter today, would, would He be able to commend me for standing so firm? Would He need to rebuke me for compromising in those same areas? And so, Father, I pray that You would challenge each one of us as we leave here. Might we not walk away from here without examining our own hearts and allowing the Spirit to shed light where light needs to be shed. And I pray that our lives would honor You. That they would magnify Jesus Christ. That we would be filled with Your Spirit as we walk in obedience to Your Word and live out the truth that we find here today. Please bless Your name in us. Amen.